It's Wednesday, October 24th, and this is The Daily Dive. International furor continues as new details emerge in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Turkish President Erdogan accuses Saudi team of a savage and premeditated murder, saying that a team landed in Istanbul ahead of Khashoggi to do background work and prepare to intercept him. There were also reports of a body double who exited the rear of the consulate wearing Khashoggi's clothes. Greg Hellman, defense reporter for Politico, joins us for more, including reports that some body parts may have been found. Next, one of the transportation visionaries of our time is at it again, as Elon Musk has announced that a test tunnel that will whisk cars underground at speeds of 130 miles per hour will open in December in Los Angeles. Laura Nelson, transportation reporter for the LA Times, joins us for what the project is about and if Musk can deliver on his ambitious plan. Finally, hostels are back in a new and trendy way. The hospitality industry is putting a new focus on youth travelers, with smaller private rooms and dorm room settings with bunk beds. Youth travelers account for about a quarter of international travelers, and companies are taking notice. My producer Miranda joins us for a breakdown of the new hotel-hostel hybrids, focusing on higher-end food and drink options with cheap beds. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The execution was no good, and the cover-up, if you want to call it that, was certainly no good. Should have never been done. But once they thought about it, everything else they did was bad, too. The cover-up was horrible. The execution was horrible. Joining us now is Greg Hellman, defense reporter for Politico. The case of Jamal Khashoggi continues to evolve. Some of the latest details are that the Turkish president, Erdogan, gave a speech to the Turkish parliament and laid out some new details and basically said that this was not some type of instant killing or anything like that. It was a planned attack, a brutal murder. What do we know about what the Turkish president laid out? Because he had some new details in there. Right, right. After one of the important points that Erdogan laid out here uh, was that uh, he said the Saudi plan was hatched days before the alleged murder here, and that the 15-man team that's suspected of capturing and killing Khashoggi was spotted days before inside the country. And in fact, there was even a body double that was seen <laughs> right. before the journalist entered the consulate. So what we see here is kind of a drip, drip, drip coming out of the Turkish government related to this case. About that timeline, about how this was a planned attack, Jamal Khashoggi mm-hmm. went to the consulate on September 28th to request the documents for his marriage. They told him, you got to come back, you know, in a few days so we can get everything together. And the way the story by the Turkish president goes is that immediately some people from the consulate headed to Saudi Arabia to, quote unquote, to plan what was happening. Then the teams came back the day before Khashoggi went to the consulate again and they were scouting areas. They were doing background work. And then the day actually happened, and that's when he was murdered, and they took the CCTV hard drive and they destroyed it and things like that. So they were all the cover-up was happening as it was going. And as you said, the body double as well, wearing the same clothes that Khashoggi had on right. and walking out through the back. You know, they said that his fiance, when he didn't come out after a few hours, said, Hey, where is he? What's going on? And they said, Oh, I don't know, he might have walked out the back door. So they were trying to cover this up right from the beginning. The details that we've seen released over uh, the past days have 
certainly been pretty damning here. And then there's the other fact that the Saudi story on this has changed kind of day by day, right? At first, that they denied any wrongdoing. Then it was a kind of interrogation gone wrong. Rogue agents had been blamed at various points by the Saudi government. So it certainly seems like a cover-up here and a sloppy one at that. And the, you know, the Turkish president is calling for all these people that the Saudis have identified as part of this that are under investigation, these 18 people. The Turkish president saying, we need those people brought here so they can be right. tried in Turkey. The consulate there is technically Saudi Arabian land, but it happened within the borders of Turkey. And he really wants to push for that. He's not letting go of that. A couple factors here at play. I'm not an expert in international law. It's just my judgment as an observer of, of foreign policy and international security that the chances of Saudis being extradited to Turkey is probably fairly low, <laughs> right. uh, to say the least. Say the least. But, but the significance here, I think, is broader. And that's that Erdogan, the Turkish president, is now using this incident to sort of score diplomatic points against Saudi Arabia, which his country has had some tensions with in, in recent times, and also to reposition Turkey, which has faced its own international issues, especially with the United States, place it really, place the country as a whole really in a better light. And Erdogan has, as I said, he's not dropping this, ended part of his speech calling for those people to be tried in Turkey. He also said, you know, why there have been so many inconsistencies in the Saudi story? Where is the body? And there was a report from Sky News that said that journalists have found parts of the body that were cut up and his face had been disfigured. All of this stuff has been coming out of the Turkish government, mostly. People have made note that they supposedly have audio recording that proves all of this. The Turkish president didn't mention any of that in his speech. They haven't released any of that. So we're still waiting for more evidence as well. Yeah, two relevant points here. One, I think it's pretty apparent that Turkish government has taken kind of a drip, drip, drip strategy towards approaching this case in the public. The Wall Street Journal had had a really excellent timeline outlawing the uh, Turkish media and Turkish government disclosures on this issue from the beginning of the incident. And in some ways, the allegation here is that that's been calculated to create a public relations nightmare for Saudi Arabia. Also relevant to note, USCIA Director Gina Haspel was just over in Turkey, presumably speaking to intelligence officials over there and getting kind of the real scoop on what the Turkish government actually has on this murder. Everybody's waiting for Turkey to publish some type of official report. Saudi Arabia probably have to amend their current report that they have out now. A lot of analysts have described kind of two camps among political leaders with this. Some want a diplomatic arrangement to allow this thing to blow over. And then others just want stronger action taken against the kingdom, maybe the crown prince, because they think that he might have ordered it from the top. But, you know, amid all of this pressure, the Saudi crown prince still gets a standing ovation in their big business conference that they had. Despite a bunch of people pulling out, there was still over 3,000 attending this conference trying to see what business that they, can, they can do with the country. The United States and Saudi Arabia's international partners have really been doing their best to maintain this really delicate balancing act, right? We see on one hand with the Trump administration especially condemning Vice President Mike Pence's words today were, were this brutal killing. But at the same time, there's an important strategic relationship here. And that doesn't go up in smoke even after a really allegedly terrible incident like this. The U.S.-Saudi relationship has been a bulk work in the Middle East going back decades right now, both in terms of security and economy. And I don't see those interests going anywhere anytime soon. 
Yeah, and this story has international, worldwide attention now, and details are starting to come out a lot more fast and furious, and things are changing every day. So everybody's waiting for how the U.S. is going to respond to all of this. Greg Hellman, defense reporter for Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Oscar. I think the thing that, you know, cities are finding difficult is that there really hasn't been any kind of a real world application of this technology that people have seen. So it's difficult to envision how it would work and what the impacts would be because it's mostly still hypothetical. Joining us now is Laura Nelson, LA Times transportation reporter. Thank you very much for joining us, Laura. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about Elon Musk. He's, you know, one of the most interesting people in our time right now, despite a lot of the public craziness that he's had with Twitter and, you know, the SEC and all that stuff. He still is one of these transportation visionaries that everybody looks to and gets excited about his projects. Um, you know, obviously Tesla, the electric car company uh, is doing pretty good. Um he brought forth the news of uh, Hyperloop, which was kind of like an above-ground uh, train that used vacuums and tubes to transport people at super high speeds. I know there's independent companies that are working on certain uh, on projects related to that. And he also had this other idea. Uh, he started a company called The Boring Company, which would be making tunnels underneath, underground, um, in order to transport cars and people also. Um, that's the one that has some news going with it recently. It's, he's had some stuff going on um, for some time now, but he just announced that the first tunnel will be open in Hawthorne, California, to the public in December with free rides for the public. Uh, describe to us what this underground tunnel is going to work like. Sure. So the tunnel is a little more than a mile long, and it runs parallel to one of the major streets in Hawthorne, which is this little city near LA International Airport. The city is best known for SpaceX, which is one of Elon Musk's other companies. And not much is known right now about how the tunnel is going to operate or what kind of conveyance or vehicle people are going to be riding in. The photos that have been shared of the project show a narrow set of railroad tracks moving through the tunnel. There's lighting on top and wiring on the sides. It's very similar to a tunnel that you might see for like a subway project or any other kind of subterranean project. But it's not known whether people are going to go through in like a little cart, in a little vehicle, or if it's going to be kind of a prototype of this loop technology that this company has been working on, which is kind of a high-speed, all-electric platform that whisks people through these tunnels that they're envisioning. He released a video, and I mean, you know, it's a video, it's computer animation. It looks like it has amazing potential. The way they envision it, your car will ride up into a, like a little elevator thing, go down into the tunnel, and then be whisked away at 130 miles an hour to your destination. Underneath in that video, it looks like there's many pathways that you can take. I mean, to make something like that would take so much time, so much effort, so much money. And there's a lot of skeptics behind what this project could really be. Especially in Southern California. I mean, every major infrastructure project hits a lot of roadblocks 
no pun intended. Um, I mean, it's just <laughs> it's very difficult to, right. to dig major projects anywhere in Southern California. And right. I think that's a good example of some of the other troubles that he could run into with other projects in Los Angeles, just like any other major infrastructure builder does. LA Metro, the transit agency, public utility companies, anyone who's digging and working in Southern California faces those kinds of issues. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge project and people are concerned about the traffic's already bad. People are going to be concerned about how it's going to affect it while the projects are being constructed. I know that um, the Boring Company has filed plans with Hawthorne and they show, they have pictures of how one of these elevator shafts that they're working on, this is, you know, largely in the testing phase, Mm -hmm. um, and they bought a house basically uh, so they can use the garage as kind of one of these elevator shafts and they're going to keep it really low key or really supposed to not be able to see what's going on in there and it's going to look like this regular old garage, but it's going to be one of the elevator testing shafts there. That's what they're saying. The plans that I wrote about show basically a 40-foot elevator shaft descending from like inside the garage area down into the ground and connecting with a spur from this one-plus-mile tunnel that we talked about earlier. And they're saying that this is not something that you or me would be able to go into and ride on, but it's solely a place where the company can practice raising and lowering cars out of the tunnel and then merging the car into the traffic in the tunnel with other vehicles present, which is obviously, a, you know, a key, a really important part of what they need to figure out in order to make the system work. I mean, if the idea is that hundreds or thousands of vehicles or people could be merging and moving through this type of tunnel system, they have to be able to figure out how to get cars efficiently in and out. And so that's what they're saying they're going to be working on in this really nondescript <laughs> little house on a side street in Hawthorne across the street from like the small local airport. I mean, it's just yeah. a very sleepy neighborhood. It's a totally interesting idea to be, you know, moving at roller coasters speeds underneath the ground in tunnels. As with everything that Elon Musk does, it's very ambitious. He wants this thing right here in Hawthorne, which is the test tunnel. He wants a Los Angeles one that goes from Dodger Stadium to um, a, a nearby city there. Something on the East Coast that would run from downtown D.C. to Baltimore, mm-hmm. Chicago, from the airport to downtown Chicago. I mean, these are things that would solve or help solve a lot of congestion problems with, the, you know, where the cars and where public transportation just doesn't really help. Laura Nelson, transportation reporter for the L.A. Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Generators Design transforms the affordable hospitality sector. Our commitment to design extends to our rooms. Built for comfort, safety and convenience. Each location features a mix of shared rooms of different sizes, private twins and luxury suites. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to be talking about the and this kind of evolution of the hotel industry, the hospitality industry. And one thing that's getting a comeback right now are youth hostels, although they don't want you to call them youth hostels anymore. Um, They're trying to shed that old identity. You think of a hostel and you think of really shady living arrangements, you know, a shared bathroom, bunk beds. Then you think back about that movie called Hostel. and I'm still scarred from that. Right. And a potential danger lurking there. But there's a lot of big business behind it now. And as I said, they're trying to shed this old identity. 
Tell us a little bit about what they're doing, Miranda. There's this London-based hospitality group called Generator, and they just opened their first U.S. property in Miami Beach last month. This is the first time that this company has made their dorm room-like accommodations outside (laughs) Europe for the first time ever. And they kind of get irritated if you call them hostels because they said that the hostel thing doesn't describe them that way. That their Miami property has more private rooms than the dorm room settings like bunk beds that you were describing. Yeah, they want to be placed in this space between a hostel and a cool boutique hotel. Yeah, and they do look like a cool boutique hotel. If you go on their website, the rooms look beautiful. And I was looking at some of the options because I was like, okay, let's pretend we're going to go to Miami. I want the premium room. It's a little bit bigger. It's got a giant king size bed. It sleeps one to two people. And it's only $125 a night to stay two minute walk from the beach in Miami. Are you kidding? This is all geared towards younger travelers and it's big business. The World Tourism Organization said that travelers age 15 to 29 accounted for an estimated 23% of all international travelers in 2015. So nearly a quarter of travelers are youth travelers and they spent over $280 billion traveling and staying in all these accommodations. So a lot of these brands are making an effort to offer these low cost rooms and even these dorm style rooms where you have a few bunk beds and people can kind of just stay in there. Hilton is also getting into some of this stuff. They have different properties where a lot of them are just smaller rooms, as you were saying, and then they do have a certain number of these shared rooms. Yeah, it's not just Generator that's getting into this style of hotel stay. There's a company called Freehand. They're based in New York, and they've got upscale youth hostels in L.A., New York, Chicago, major U.S. cities. And like you said, Hilton, they just launched their first what they're calling an urban micro brand called Motto by Hilton, and they're referring to that as a hostel on steroids. And the focus here, Oscar, is getting rid of the room amenities and focusing on things like really cool restaurants and bars and hot coffee shops within the property. They're focusing their emphasis on experience-based pleasures rather than luxury comforts like a fluffy bed. This is kind of the trend, this cheaper stay and building out the restaurants and bars. But where these hostels on steroids differ from when you picture a European youth hostel in your head is, for the most part, these rooms are private. So you don't have to share with some random dude who hasn't showered in three weeks. You're going to (laughs) be staying with your friends. With the exception of Generator, they have female-only dorm sections where it's like you will possibly be sharing with strangers, but it's going to be another woman. Yeah, and that will be a lot more pleasing to maybe parents who are letting their high school-aged daughters going out on their own, traveling abroad or whatever, to feel a little more comfortable that they'll be in a female-only living situation there. I did the math in the female-only dorm room, because now I'm very curious. It's $25 a night per bed. There's four beds in a room. So potentially, if you wanted to stay in this room for one month, a 30-day stay, you'll end up paying only $750. Wow. That's That's, pretty good. That's less expensive than if you were to probably go like right next door on the same street to the Westin Hotel in Miami Beach, right on the water. That's two nights. For a cup for a few days. Yeah, exactly. Let's kind of paint the picture. What is it like to stay in one of these? So they have 24-hour service, which means there's always someone who works there available to you to help you out. And they've got towels in the rooms. They've all got private bathrooms. They've got the amenities like we discussed. And they also have events. So you may be staying on a weekend where Pitbull is performing at the pool. But what's really interesting to me, Oscar, was that you're not allowed to bring strangers into the hotels or excuse me, into the hostels. You can have anybody who's staying at the hostel hang out with you, but not in your bedroom. 
they can stay out with you in the, yeah. the common spaces you can have guests. And that is interesting. I think that's very important to combat this notion of you're not safe in one of these settings because you're already sharing it with somebody else. And what if they bring somebody creepy back to the room or something? So that's good that they're eliminating that. So hopefully they're is more of a sense of security there. I think I've passed these already. I like to have my own room. and But the one in Miami, Oscar, it's a beautiful room. It's 125 bucks. Yeah, but if I can't bring anybody back, you know, I can't got bring a wife. friends back. I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying that. So Youth Hostel's expanding in the U.S., trying to shed these old identities. We'll see if they gain in popularity. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>